thank you for the opportunity of being able to come down and, and worship with you this morning. Uh, as Nick said, my name is Martin Rogers. I'm a pastor at Grace West Bible Church in Melbourne. Uh, we were a church plant started about eight years ago. And by God's grace, we are seeing growth in people. And uh, it's just wonderful to be able to go to other churches that hold up God's word and honour and glorify him through his word. But it's also very difficult to come to a church where most of you I don't know. <clears throat> and obviously people are from different age groups and trying to present a message that would be relevant to all. The one thing I do want to do this morning is to talk about the issue of getting old. And specifically, how we as Christians can ensure that when we get to old age, we finish our life well. That's something that applies to all of us, whatever our age. So I want to look this morning at Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, as I will show you in a moment, is the final chapter that we have in Scripture of Daniel's life. And Daniel was a man who was godly and maintained a godly walk throughout all his days. So the title of the sermon this morning is Finishing Well, Lessons from the Life of Daniel. Finishing Well, Lessons from the Life of Daniel. We'll have an introduction, then we'll get finally to chapter 6, and finally we'll look at how Daniel's life can encourage us in our walk with Christ to be able to finish well. The book of Daniel is one of the most vehemently attacked books in the Bible by liberal theologians. It's the very first book they attacked because they flatly deny God's ability to be able to predict the future. And it's because those prophecies were fulfilled so accurately in the book of Daniel that they conclude that the book of Daniel must have been written after the events were fulfilled. My personal view is that Daniel lived and prophesied during the 6th century BC, precisely as the Bible claims, and God used Daniel to pro prophesy events that then occurred over the next subsequent centuries. So that will be my uh, stance as we come before God's word this morning. So first of all this morning I want to do an introduction and basically look at the events prior to Daniel chapter 6. As we come to the book of Daniel, specifically to chapter 6, one of the characters that we find is Cyrus, the king of Persia. He reigned from 559 to 530 BC, and he was instrumental in the takeover of Babylon in 539 BC. We'll come to that. Now, you may have seen the Cyrus Cylinder. You may have seen pictures of this. It was discovered in 1879. It's about 10 inches long and about 4 inches or 10 centimetres at its widest point. And the information that we find on that Cyrus cylinder dovetails perfectly with scripture. 
Now let me read to you 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 to 23. This is what God says in, at the end of the book of 2 Chronicles. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. So there we see Cyrus's command that the captives of, of Babylon from Jerusalem were welcome to go back in order to rebuild the temple. Now on the Cyrus cylinder, we also see what Cyrus did. And according to Wikipedia, we have this. He, that is Cyrus, describes the pious deeds he performed after his conquest. He restored peace to Babylon and the other cities sacred to Marduk. Marduk was one of his gods. He repaired the ruined temples in the cities he conquered, restored their cults, and returned their sacred images as well as, all, as, well as their former inhabitants." End quote. Now, that being the case, it astonishes me that theologians would try to date the book of Daniel centuries after its claimed date, when discoveries such as the Cyrus Cylinder make it so clear when Daniel actually lived. Not that we need to rely on extra biblical evidence, but in this case, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. So my premise, as I said, is that Daniel lived uh, around 600 to 540 BC, exactly as the Bible states. What I want to do here is to provide an outline of the book of Daniel, but I want to do it in chronological order. And the dates given are found mostly in the book of Daniel, and sometimes secular history comes in to help us as well. The timeline may, may take us a little while to put together, but it's absolutely relevant to the question that I'm seeking to answer this morning with you. Now, the book of Daniel breaks chronologically into three main sections. And on the back of your new sheet, you've got a, a, a picture of the, the, uh, the slide that will come up. There's not enough room to write in there, but you might like to, go, you might like to just take some notes there for, uh, for yourself. The first section goes from 605 to 562 BC. Daniel was probably born around 620 BC. And the events of chapters 1 to 4 in the book of Daniel all took place during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, who died in 562 BC. Now, there's a lot of information in those first four chapters. Chapter 1 opens with Nebuchadnezzar's attack on Jerusalem. At that stage, he was the vice-regent to his ailing father, King Nebopolassar. And whilst he was attacking Jerusalem in 605 BC, he received news that his father had died in Babylon. He then returned to Babylon, where he was subsequently crowned king. But so that Jerusalem's king did not do anything foolish, like mounting a rebellion against him, Nebuchadnezzar took a bunch of young men back with him to Babylon. Some estimates say that there was as many as 75 of those young men. And he took them back to Babylon. Even at that stage, 
Nebuchadnezzar fully intended taking captive the entire Jewish people. But he wanted a bunch of young men whom he would be able to convince, whom he would use to convince the other captives when they came that he, Nebuchadnezzar, was actually a good bloke. So these young men were schooled in all their Babylonian knowledge and language. They were fed the best food uh, and their names were changed. However, four of them, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, refused to eat the king's food in case it had been offered to idols. And they took God's law seriously. And as a result, God honoured these four above all the others. Daniel 1 verse 20 tells us that at the end of their schooling, they were ten times as good as anyone else in the kingdom, including all the other magicians. That's chapter 1. We then come to chapter 2. Now please turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 represents a monumental shift within the scripture record. And I want to show you why that is the case. Since the days of Abraham, God had spoken to the world exclusively through the Hebrew or the Israelites. Hebrew people or the Israelites. Now, think about that for a moment. We're talking here about 1,400 years. For 1,400 years, God had spoken to the world exclusively through that nation of Israel. In Isaiah 42, verses 6 to 9, God declared the purpose of the people of Israel was to be a light for the Gentiles, an example of how a nation ought to behave under him. The Gentile nations were to look at Israel and thereby be attracted to Israel's God. The problem was that they failed miserably. In fact, they ignored God's laws so continually that in 722 BC, God sent the ten northern kingdoms into captivity by Assyria, from which they never returned. Those Jews who still desired to honour God had already journeyed southwards and mingled with the remaining tribes in Judah. But even the tribes of Judah and Benjamin disobeyed God. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel warned the people of Judah that there was doom coming and they needed to repent, but they did not do that. So finally in 605 BC, God used Nebuchadnezzar to take the people of Judah into captivity in three waves. The first wave occurred in 605 BC, which was Daniel and his friends. The second wave occurred in 597 BC, and that included Ezekiel and a large number of Jewish people. And finally, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar captured the remaining people and also destroyed Solomon's temple. Now, Jeremiah had prophesied that the captivity would last for 70 years. But this then, of course, produced an even bigger quandary. Because as I said earlier, God for the previous 1400 years had spoken to the world exclusively through the Jewish people. Even though books like Jonah had been given a Gentile audience, the person giving the message, Jonah in that case, was still Jewish. But now you see the Jewish people were in captivity. 
So the question is now, how is God going to make his desires known to the world? After all, the Jews were in captivity precisely because they had failed to honour God. So does this now mean that God was now unable to speak to the world? Not at all. God merely changed the way he spoke to the world. How? He spoke to them in Aramaic. Now, this is a monumental change, but it's largely hidden in our English Bibles. If you open to Daniel chapter 2, look at verses 1 to 3. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then look at verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. Now let's stop there for a moment. I'm using the ESV this morning. And if you've got an ESV, you'll see that after the word Aramaic, at least in my Bible, there's a little number one, which refers to a footnote. And the footnote in my Bible says the text from this point to the end of chapter 7 is in Aramaic. Now that doesn't mean much to us. Our Bible is entirely in English. So a switch from Hebrew to Aramaic at this point, we don't even see it. We would say, so what? Well, let me tell you about the Aramaic language. Quote, Aramaic is the ancient language of the Semitic family group, which includes the Assyrians, Babylonians, Chaldeans, Arameans, Hebrews, and Arabs. In fact, a large part of the Hebrew and Arabic language is borrowed from Aramaic, including the alphabet. In a phenomenal wave of expansion after about 800 BC, Aramaic spread over Palestine and Syria and large tracts of Asia and Egypt, replacing many languages including Akkadian and Hebrew. For about 1,000 years it served as the official and written language of the Near East." End quote. So the fact that the next six chapters of the book of Daniel were written in Aramaic means that it could be read by anyone over the next 1,000 years. That is to the fall of the Roman Empire. So this was a monumental shift, and it was a monumental shift in the local language. So what does chapter 2 record? It records God's given, a God-given dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel actually interpreted that dream at the end of chapter 2, including its meaning. Its meaning was this. Nebuchadnezzar, the, 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 the dream was of a statue made up of different parts, different metals for different parts of the body. There was a head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. Nebuchadnezzar, according to Daniel's interpretation, was the head of gold. He was the king of Babylon. The chest and arms of silver were the Medo-Persian Empire which conquered Babylon in 539 BC. The belly and thighs were of bronze were the Greek Empire. The legs of iron spoke of the Roman Empire. 
and the feet of iron and clay speak of a still yet to come nation, a, con a conglomeration of ten rulers. And the dream said that while these ten rulers were, were ruling, a stone not cut by hand came and struck the feet of the, the statue and the whole thing collapsed. That's chapter 2. Now in response to the dream of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar seems to have set up his own statue in chapter 3. But this was, not the chap this was not the statue as God had given it. This was his own statue. It was all gold. Nebuchadnezzar was not content to just be the head of gold. He was the whole deal. That's what he was saying. Now we don't get this when, like Sunday school. A lot of these are real Sunday school session type um, pictures that we, we have in, in Sunday school. But we don't connect them together. Right? So the same guy who, for whom this dream was given in chapter 2 is the guy that built the same one in chapter 3. He's the same one we'll see in chapter 4. We'll get to him in a moment. It's the same guy. God is working in this guy. So you can understand if this guy is saying, I'm not just the head of gold, I'm the whole, the whole deal. You can understand why he got so angry when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down and worship him. He got really angry. And so he cast them into a fiery furnace that had been heated up seven times hotter than normal. However, God supernaturally preserved them. They not only came out unharmed, but the ropes that had been surrounding them had been burnt, but there was not even the smell of fire on them, and none of their hair has been singed either. Incredible stuff. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4, we have the same guy, Nebuchadnezzar, again. This is a proud guy. And God humbled Nebuchadnezzar by literally putting him out to pasture for a period of seven years. The guy went insane. And all of this is in Aramaic. That brings us to the end of chapter 4. And it also brings us to the end of section 1, which is Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel, by the end of this stage, was in his late 50s. That's section 1. Section 2 covers 553 to 551 BC. Now, chronologically, the next chapters that we have in the book of Daniel are chapters 7 and 8. And they concern Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, a guy named King Belshazzar. According to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, the prophecy came in the first year of Belshazzar's reign in 553 BC. Chapter 8 was given in the third year of Belshazzar, also in verse 1 of that chapter, which is 551 BC. By this stage, Daniel was in his late 60s. That's section 2. Section 3 concerns the period from 539 BC onward. The next event in the chronological order was given on October 16, 539 BC. This was the final day of Belshazzar's reign. At that time, Babylon was being attacked and Belshazzar was partying hard with his men. And you remember, the, probably from, if you've been to Sunday school, you remember the picture of the, the, the handwriting on the wall? Right? This is in chapter 5. That's the next thing that happened chronologically. The fingers of a human hand, 
appeared on the wall and wrote a message that only Daniel was able to read. The message, or the interpretation of the message, was that King Belshazzar had been measured but did not measure up, so his kingdom had been removed from him. And chapter 5 records the fact that that very night, Belshazzar was slain and Cyrus the Mede took over. Now chronologically, we then revert back to the Hebrew language because we've got chapters 9, chapter 11 and chapter 12, all of which occurred after Cyrus defeated Babylon. A few years later, in 537 BC, we have chapter 10. Uh, verse 1 of that chapter tells us that it was Cyrus, uh, the third year of Cyrus's reign. And sometime after that chapter, after those events, in chapter 10, we come to the only remaining chapter, Daniel chapter 6. But remember, Daniel chapter 6 is one of these chapters written in Aramaic. So its message was meant to be read by everyone. Now, if you can do your maths fairly easily, you can find out that if Daniel was born around 620 BC, by now he's in his mid-80s. He is a very old man. In fact, this chapter is the final event, as I said, in Daniel's life recorded in Scripture. Now, before we actually get to Daniel chapter 6, I want to do one more thing with you. I want to show you how important Daniel was, even in his own day. Please turn to Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel is the chapter before, the book before Daniel's. Let's go back one book. Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14 was written sometime before 586 BC. Uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, that will occur in chapter 24. But even by this stage, Daniel was well known and a significant figure in Jewish society. How significant? Well, have a look at what we read in Exodus, oh, sorry, Ezekiel chapter 14. Look at verses 12 to 14. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. And I hear you say, well, so what? Three guys. Three men are mentioned in that passage. Noah, Job, and Daniel. Noah lived around 2350 B.C., we think Job lived around 2000 BC, probably just before Abraham. Now you consider those two there and then Abraham. Think of the men in scripture who have been, the godly men who have been listed since that time. There's Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and you probably put a few more in there. But not one of those men was included in this list of three godly men. And by this stage, Daniel would have been around 30 years of age. So according to Ezekiel chapter 14, when it came to personal holiness, Daniel was right up there with the top three. 
He was a very special guy, even at the age of 30. So that then brings us to chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6. Now I assume that the events of Daniel chapter 6 are probably familiar to most of us. This is Daniel in the lion's den. Now my intention this morning is to travel fairly quickly through the text and instead focus on the application at the end to our own lives. Remember the, uh, the question we are addressing is this. How can I ensure that if and when I get to old age, my Christian witness will still be vibrant and real? That's the question we're looking at. We'll work our way through the text of Daniel chapter 6, and then we'll return to that question and apply, our, apply it to our life. 